Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 20 of A Child's History of England This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens Chapter 20 England under Henry the Fourth, called Bullingbroke During the last reign, the preaching of Wycliffe against the pride and cunning of the Pope and all his men had made a great noise in England. Whether the new king wished to be in favour with the priests, or whether he hoped by pretending to be very religious, to cheat heaven itself into the belief that he was not a usurper, I don't know. Both suppositions are likely enough. It is certain that he began his reign by making a strong show against the followers of Wycliffe, who were called Lollards, or heretics, although his father, John of Gaunt, had been of that way of thinking, as he himself had been more than suspected of being. It is no less certain that he first established in England the detestable and atrocious custom, brought from abroad, of burning those people as a punishment for their opinions. It was the importation into England of one of the practices of what was called the Holy Inquisition, which was the most unholy and the most infamous tribunal that ever disgraced mankind, and made men more like demons than followers of our Saviour. No real right to the crown, as you know, was in this king. Edward Mortimer, the young Earl of March, who was only eight or nine years old, and who was descended from the Duke of Clarence, the elder brother of Henry's father, was, by succession, the real heir to the throne. However, the king got his son declared Prince of Wales, and, obtaining possession of the young Earl of March and his little brother, kept them in confinement but not severely, in Windsor Castle. He then required the Parliament to decide what was to be done with the deposed King, who was quiet enough, and who only said that he hoped his cousin Henry would be a good lord to him. The Parliament replied that they would recommend his being kept in some secret place, where the people could not resort, and where his friends could not be admitted to see him. Henry accordingly passed this sentence upon him, and it now began to be pretty clear to the nation that Richard II would not live very long. It was a noisy Parliament, as it was an unprincipled one, and the Lords quarrelled so violently among themselves as to which of them had been loyal and which disloyal, and which consistent and which inconsistent, that forty gauntlets are said to have been thrown upon the floor at one time as challenges to as many battles, the truth being that they were all false and base together, and had been at one time with the old king, and at another time with the new one, and seldom true for any length of time to any one. They soon began to plot again. A conspiracy was formed to invite the king to a tournament at Oxford, and then to take him by surprise and kill him. This murderous enterprise, which was agreed upon at secret meetings, in the house of the abbot of Westminster, was betrayed by the Earl of Rutland, one of the conspirators. The king, instead of going to the tournament, or staying at Windsor, where the conspirators suddenly went, on finding themselves discovered, with the hope of seizing him, retired to London, proclaimed them all traitors, and advanced upon them with a great force. They retired into the west of England, proclaiming Richard king, but the people rose against them, and they were all slain. Their treason hastened the end of the deposed monarch. 
whether he was killed by hired assassins, or whether he was starved to death, or whether he refused food on hearing of his brothers being killed, who were in that plot, is very doubtful. He met his death somehow, and his body was publicly shown at St. Paul's Cathedral, with only the lower part of the face uncovered. I can scarcely doubt that he was killed by the King's orders. The French wife of the miserable Richard was now only ten years old, and, when her father, Charles of France, heard of her misfortunes, and of her lonely condition in England, he went mad, as he had several times done before, during the last five or six years. The French dukes of Burgundy and Bourbon took up the poor girl's cause, without caring much about it, but on the chance of getting something out of England. The people of Bordeaux, who had a sort of superstitious attachment to the memory of Richard, because he was born there, swore by the Lord that he had been the best man in all his kingdom, which was going rather far, and promised to do great things against the English. Nevertheless, when they came to consider that they, and the whole people of France, were ruined by their own nobles, and that the English rule was much the better of the two, they cooled down again, and the two dukes, although they were very great men, could do nothing without them. Then began negotiations, between France and England, for the sending home to Paris of the poor little queen, with all her jewels, and her fortune of two hundred thousand francs in gold. The king was quite willing to restore the young lady, and even the jewels, but he said he really could not part with the money. So, at last, she was safely deposited at Paris without her fortune. And then the Duke of Burgundy, who was cousin to the French king, began to quarrel with the Duke of Orleans, who was brother to the French king, about the whole matter, and those two dukes made France even more wretched than ever. As the idea of conquering Scotland was still popular at home, the king marched to the River Tyne, and demanded homage of the king of that country. This being refused, he advanced to Edinburgh, but did little there, for, his army being in want of provisions, and the Scotch being very careful to hold him in check without giving battle, he was obliged to retire. It is to his immortal honour that in this sally he burnt no villages, and slaughtered no people, but was particularly careful that his army should be merciful and harmless. It was a great example in those ruthless times. A war among the border people of England and Scotland went on for twelve months, and then the Earl of Northumberland, the nobleman who had helped Henry to the crown, began to rebel against him, probably because nothing that Henry could do for him would satisfy his extravagant expectations. There was a certain Welsh gentleman, named Owen Glendower, who had been a student in one of the inns of court, and had afterwards been in the service of the late king, whose Welsh property was taken from him by a powerful lord related to the present king who was his neighbour. Appealing for redress and getting none, he took up arms, was made an outlaw, and declared himself sovereign of Wales. He pretended to be a magician, and not only were the Welsh people stupid enough to believe him, but even Henry believed him too, for, making three expeditions into Wales, and being three times driven back by the wildness of the country, the bad weather, and the skill of Glendower, he thought he was defeated by the Welshman's magic arts. However, he took Lord Grey and Sir Edmund Mortimer prisoners, and allowed the relatives of Lord Grey to ransom him, but would not extend such favour to Sir Edmund Mortimer. Now, Henry Percy, called Hotspur, son of the Earl of Northumberland, who was married to Mortimer's sister, is supposed to have taken offence at this, and therefore, in conjunction with his father and some others, to have joined Owen Glendower, and risen against Henry. It is by no means clear that this was the real cause of the conspiracy, but perhaps it was made the pretext. It was formed, and was very powerful, including Scroop, Archbishop of York, and the Earl of Douglas, a powerful and brave Scottish nobleman. The King was prompt and active, and the two armies met at Shrewsbury. 
there were about fourteen thousand men in each. The old Earl of Northumberland being sick, the rebel forces were led by his son. The king wore plain armour to deceive the enemy, and four noblemen, with the same object, wore the royal arms. The rebel charge was so furious that every one of those gentlemen was killed, the royal standard was beaten down, and the young Prince of Wales was severely wounded in the face. But he was one of the bravest and best soldiers that ever lived, and he fought so well, and the king's troops were so encouraged by his bold example, that they rallied immediately, and cut the enemy's forces all to pieces. Hotspur was killed by an arrow in the brain, and the rout was so complete that the whole rebellion was struck down by this one blow. The Earl of Northumberland surrendered himself soon after hearing of the death of his son, and received a pardon for all his offences. There were some lingerings of rebellion yet, Owen Glendower being retired to Wales, and a preposterous story being spread among the ignorant people that King Richard was still alive. How they could have believed such nonsense it is difficult to imagine, but they certainly did suppose that the court fool of the late king, who was something like him, was he himself. So that it seemed as if, after giving so much trouble to the country in his life, he was still to trouble it after his death. This was not the worst. The young Earl of March and his brother were stolen out of Windsor Castle. Being retaken, and being found to have been spirited away by one Lady Spencer, she accused her own brother, that Earl of Rutland who was in the former conspiracy, and was now Duke of York, of being in the plot. For this he was ruined in fortune, though not put to death. And then another plot rose among the old Earl of Northumberland, some other lords, and that same Scroop, Archbishop of York, who was with the rebels before. These conspirators caused a writing to be posted on the church doors, accusing the king of a variety of crimes. But, the king being eager and vigilant to oppose them, they were all taken, and the archbishop was executed. This was the first time that a great churchman had been slain by the law in England, but the king was resolved that it should be done, and done it was. The next most remarkable event of this time was the seizure, by Henry, of the heir to the Scottish throne, James, a boy of nine years old. He had been put aboard ship by his father, the Scottish King Robert, to save him from the designs of his uncle, when, on his way to France, he was accidentally taken by some English cruisers. He remained a prisoner in England for nineteen years, and became in his prison a student and a famous poet. With the exception of occasional troubles with the Welsh and with the French, the rest of King Henry's reign was quiet enough. But the king was far from happy, and probably was troubled in his conscience by knowing that he had usurped the crown, and had occasioned the death of his miserable cousin. The Prince of Wales, though brave and generous, is said to have been wild and dissipated, and even to have drawn his sword on Gascoigne, the chief justice of the king's bench, because he was firm in dealing impartially with one of his dissolute companions. Upon this the Chief Justice is said to have ordered him immediately to prison. The Prince of Wales is said to have submitted with a good grace, and the King is said to have exclaimed, Happy is the monarch who has so just a judge, and a son so willing to obey the laws. This is all very doubtful, and so is another story, of which Shakespeare has made beautiful use that the prince once took the crown out of his father's chamber as he was sleeping, and tried it on his own head. The king's health sank more and more, and he became subject to violent eruptions on the face, and to bad epileptic fits, and his spirits sank every day. At last, as he was praying before the shrine of St. Edward at Westminster Abbey, he was seized with a terrible fit, and was carried into the abbot's chamber, where he presently died. It had been foretold that he would die at Jerusalem, which certainly is not, and never was, Westminster. But, as the abbot's room had long been called the Jerusalem Chamber, people said it was all the same thing, and were quite satisfied with the prediction. The King died on the 20th of March, 1413, 
in the forty-seventh year of his age, and the fourteenth of his reign. He was buried in Canterbury Cathedral. He had been twice married, and had, by his first wife, a family of four sons and two daughters. Considering his duplicity before he came to the throne, his unjust seizure of it, and, above all, his making that monstrous law for the burning of what the priests called heretics, he was a reasonably good king, as kings went. End of chapter 20、Chapter、Twenty One of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Leader. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty One. England under Henry V. First part. The Prince of Wales began his reign like a generous and honest man. He set the young Earl of March free. He restored their estates and their honours to the Percy family, who had lost them by the rebellion against his father. He ordered the imbecile and unfortunate Richard to be honourably buried among the kings of England, and he dismissed all his wild companions with assurances that they should not want if they would resolve to be steady, faithful, and true. It is much easier to burn men than to burn their opinions, and those of the Lollards were spreading every day. The Lollards were represented by the priests, probably falsely for the most part, to entertain treasonable designs against the new king, and Henry, suffering himself to be worked upon by these representations, sacrificed his friend Sir John Oldcastle, the Lord Cobham, to them, after trying in vain to convert him by arguments. He was declared guilty, as the head of the sect, and sentenced to the flames. But he escaped from the tower before the day of execution, postponed for fifty days by the king himself, and summoned the Lollards to meet him near London on a certain day. So the priests told the king, at least. I doubt whether there was any conspiracy beyond such as was got up by their agents. On the day appointed, instead of five and twenty thousand men, under the command of Sir John Oldcastle, In the meadows of St. Giles, the king found only eighty men, and no Sir John at all. There was, in another place, an addle headed brewer who had gold trappings to his horses and a pair of gilt spurs in his breast, expecting to be made a knight next day by Sir John, and so to gain the right to wear them. But there was no Sir John, nor did anybody give information respecting him, though the king offered great rewards for such intelligence. Thirty of these unfortunate Lollards were hanged and drawn immediately, and were then burnt, gallows and all. And the various prisons in and around London were crammed full of others. Some of these unfortunate men made various confessions of treasonable designs, but such confessions were easily got, under torture and the fear of fire, and are very little to be trusted. To finish the sad story of Sir John Oldcastle at once, I may mention that he escaped into Wales and remained there safely for four years. When discovered by Lord Powis, it is very doubtful if he would have been taken alive, so great was the old soldier's bravery, if a miserable old woman had not come behind him and broken his legs with a stool. He was carried to London in a horse litter, was fastened by an iron chain to a gibbet, and so roasted to death. To make the state of France as plain as I can in a few words, I should tell you that the Duke of Orleans and the Duke of Burgundy, commonly called John without fear, had had a grand reconciliation of their quarrel in the last reign, and had appeared to be quite in a heavenly state of mind. Immediately after which, on a Sunday, in the public streets of Paris, the Duke of Orleans was murdered by a party of twenty men, set on by the Duke of Burgundy. According to his own deliberate confession, the widow of King Richard had been married in France to the eldest son of the Duke of Orleans. The poor mad king was quite powerless to help her, and the Duke of Burgundy became the real master of France. Isabella dying, her husband, a Duke of Orleans since the death of his father, married the daughter of the Count of Armagnac, 
who, being a much abler man than his young son-in-law, headed his party, thence called after him Armagnacs. Thus France was now in this terrible condition, that it had in it the party of the King's son, the Dauphin Louis, the party of the Duke of Burgundy, who was the father of the Dauphin's ill-used wife, and the party of the Armagnacs, all hating each other, all fighting together, all composed of the most depraved nobles that the earth has ever known, and all tearing unhappy France to pieces. The late king had watched these dissensions from England, sensible, like the French people, that no enemy of France could injure her more than her own nobility. The present king now advanced a claim to the French throne. His demand being, of course, refused, he reduced his proposal to a certain large amount of French territory, and to demanding the French princess Catherine in marriage with a fortune of two millions of golden crowns. He was offered less territory, and fewer crowns, and no princess, but he called his ambassadors home and prepared for war. Then he proposed to take the princess with one million of crowns. The French court replied that he should have the princess with two hundred thousand crowns less. He said this would not do. He had never seen the princess in his life, and assembled his army at Southampton. There was a short plot at home just at that time for deposing him and making the Earl of March king. But the conspirators were all speedily condemned and executed, and the king embarked for France. It is dreadful to observe how long a bad example will be followed, but it is encouraging to know that a good example is never thrown away. The king's first act on disembarking at the mouth of the River Seine, three miles from Harfleur, was to imitate his father, and to proclaim his solemn orders that the lives and property of the peaceable inhabitants should be respected on pain of death. It is agreed by French writers, to his lasting renown, that even while his soldiers were suffering the greatest distress from want of food, these commands were rigidly obeyed. With an army in all of thirty thousand men, he besieged the town of Harfleur both by sea and land for five weeks, at the end of which time the town surrendered, and the inhabitants were allowed to depart with only five pence each, and a part of their clothes. All the rest of their possessions was divided amongst the English army. But that army suffered so much, in spite of its successes, from disease and privation, that it was already reduced one-half. Still, the king was determined not to retire until he had struck a greater blow. Therefore, against the advice of all his counsellors, he moved on with his little force toward Calais. When he came to the river Somme, he was unable to cross, in consequence of the fort being fortified, and as the English moved up the left bank of the river looking for a crossing, the French, who had broken all the bridges, moved up the right bank, watching them, and waiting to attack them when they should try to pass it. At last the English found a crossing and got safely over. The French held a council of war at Rouen, resolved to give the English battle, and sent heralds to King Henry, to know by which road he was going. "'By the road that will take me straight to Calais,' said the king, and sent them away with a present of a hundred crowns. The English moved on, until they beheld the French, and then the king gave orders to form in line of battle. The French not coming on, the army broke up after remaining in battle array till night, and got good rest and refreshment at the neighbouring village. The French were now all lying in another village, through which they knew the English must pass. They were resolved that the English should begin the battle. The English had no means of retreat, if their king had any such intention, and so the two armies passed the night close together. To understand these armies well, you must bear in mind that the immense French army had, among its notable persons, almost the whole of that wicked nobility, whose debauchery had made France a desert, and so besotted were they by pride and by contempt for the common people, that they had scarcely any bowmen, if indeed they had any at all, in their whole enormous number, which, compared with the English army, was at least a six to one. For these proud fools had said that the bow was not a fit weapon for knightly hands, and that France must be defended by gentlemen only. We shall see, presently, 
what hand the gentleman made of it. Now, on the English side, among the little force, there was a good proportion of men who were not gentlemen by any means, but who were good stout archers for all that. Among them, in the morning, having slept little at night, while the French were carousing and making sure of victory, the king rode on a grey horse, wearing on his head a helmet of shining steel, surmounted by a crown of gold, sparkling with precious stones, and bearing over his armour, embroidered together, the arms of England and the arms of France. The archers looked at the shining helmet and the crown of gold and the sparkling jewels, and admired them all. But what they admired most was the king's cheerful face, and his bright blue eye, as he told them that, for himself, he had made up his mind to conquer there or to die there, and that England should never have a ransom to pay for him. There was one brave knight who chanced to say that he wished some of the many gallant gentlemen and good soldiers who were then idle at home in England were there to increase their numbers. But the king told him that, for his part, he did not wish for one more man. The fewer we have, said he, the greater will be the honour we shall win. His men, being now all in good heart, were refreshed with bread and wine, and heard prayers, and waited quietly for the French. The king waited for the French, because they were drawn up thirty deep—the little English force was only three deep—on very difficult and heavy ground, and he knew that when they moved there must be confusion among them. As they did not move, he sent off two parties, one to lie concealed in a wood on the left of the French, the other to set fire to some houses behind the French after the battle should be begun. This was scarcely done when three of the proud French gentlemen, who were to defend their country without any help from the base peasants, came riding out, calling upon the English to surrender. The king warned those gentlemen himself to retire with all speed if they cared for their lives, and ordered the English banners to advance. Upon that, Sir Thomas Eppingham, a great English general, who commanded the archers, threw his truncheon into the air, joyfully, and all the Englishmen, kneeling down upon the ground and biting it as if they took possession of the country, rose up with a great shout, and fell upon the French. Every archer was furnished with a great stake tipped with iron, and his orders were to thrust this stake into the ground, to discharge his arrow, and then to fall back when the French horsemen came on. As the haughty French gentlemen, who were to break the English archers and utterly destroy them with their knightly lances, came riding up, they were received with such a blinding storm of arrows that they broke and turned. Horses and men rolled over one another, and the confusion was terrific. Those who rallied and charged the archers got among the stakes on slippery and boggy ground, and were so bewildered that the English archers, who wore no armour, and even took off their leathern coats to be more active, cut them to pieces, root and branch. Only three French horsemen got within the stakes, and those were instantly dispatched. All this time the dense French army, being in armour, were sinking knee-deep into the mire, while the light English archers, half-naked, were as fresh and active as if they were fighting on a marble floor. But now, the second division of the French, coming to the relief of the first, closed up in a firm mass. The English, headed by the king, attacked them, and the deadliest part of the battle began. The king's brother, the Duke of Clarence, was struck down, and numbers of the French surrounded him. But King Henry, standing over the body, fought like a lion until they were beaten off. Presently came up a band of eighteen French knights, bearing the banner of a certain French lord who had sworn to kill or take the English king. One of them struck him such a blow with a battle-axe that he reeled and fell upon his knees, but his faithful men, immediately closing around him, killed every one of those eighteen knights, and so that French lord never kept his oath. The French Duke of Alençon, seeing this, made a desperate charge and cut his way close up to the royal standard of England. He beat down the Duke of York, who was standing near it, and when the king came to his rescue, struck off a piece of the crown he wore. But he never struck another blow in this world, 
for even as he was in the act of saying who he was, and that he surrendered to the king, and even as the king stretched out his hand to give him a safe and honourable acceptance of the author, he fell dead, pierced by innumerable wounds. The death of this nobleman decided the battle. The third division of the French army, which had never struck a blow yet, and which was, in itself, more than double the whole English power, broke and fled. At this time of the flight, the English, who as yet had made no prisoners, began to take them in immense numbers, and were still occupied in doing so, or in killing those who would not surrender, when a great noise arose in the rear of the French. Their flying banners were seen to stop, and King Henry, supposing a great reinforcement to have arrived, gave orders that all the prisoners should be put to death. As soon, however, as it was found that the noise was only occasioned by a body of plundering peasants, the terrible massacre was stopped. Then King Henry called to him the French herald, and asked him to whom the victory belonged. The herald replied, "'To the King of England!' "'We have not made this havoc and slaughter,' said the King. "'It is the wrath of heaven on the sins of France. What is the name of that castle yonder?' The herald answered him, "'My lord, it is the castle Azincourt,' said the king. "'From henceforth this battle shall be known to posterity by the name of the Battle of Azincourt.' Now, our English historians have made it Agincourt, but under that name it will ever be famous in English annals. The loss upon the French side was enormous. Three dukes were killed, two more were taken prisoners, seven counts were killed, three more were taken prisoners, and ten thousand knights and gentlemen were slain upon the field. The English loss amounted to sixteen hundred men, among whom were the Duke of York and the Earl of Suffolk. War is a dreadful thing, and it is appalling to know how the English were obliged, next morning, to kill those prisoners mortally wounded who yet writhed in agony upon the ground, how the dead upon the French side were stripped by their own countrymen and countrywomen, and afterwards buried in great pits, how the dead upon the English side were piled up in a great barn, and how their bodies and the barn were all burned together. It is in such things, and in many more much too horrible to relate, that the real desolation and wickedness of war consist. Nothing can make war otherwise than horrible. But the dark side of it was little thought of, and soon forgotten, and it cast no shade of trouble on the English people, except on those who had lost friends or relations in the fight. They welcomed their king home with shouts of rejoicing, and plunged into the water to bear him ashore on their shoulders, and flocked out in crowds to welcome him in every town through which he passed, and hung rich carpets and tapestries out of the windows, and strewed the streets with flowers, and made the fountains run with wine, as the great field of Agincourt had run with blood. Second Part that proud and wicked French nobility, who dragged their country to destruction, and who were every day and every year regarded with deeper hatred and detestation in the hearts of the French people, learnt nothing, even from the defeat of Agincourt. So far from uniting against the common enemy, they became, among themselves, more violent, more bloody, and more false, if that were possible, than they had been before. The Count of Armagnac persuaded the French king to plunder of her treasures Queen Isabella of Bavaria, and to make her a prisoner. She, who had hitherto been the bitter enemy of the Duke of Burgundy, proposed to join him in revenge. He carried her off to Troy, where she proclaimed herself regent of France, and made him her lieutenant. The Armagnac party were at that time possessed of Paris but one of the gates of the city being secretly opened on a certain night to a party of the duke's men, they got into Paris, threw into the prisons all the Armagnacs upon whom they could lay their hands, and a few nights afterwards, with the aid of a furious mob of sixty thousand people, broke the prisons opened and killed them all. The former Dauphin was now dead, and the king's third son bore the title. Him, in the height of this murderous scene, a French knight hurried out of bed, wrapped him in a sheet, and bore away to Poitiers. 
So, when the revengeful Isabella and the Duke of Burgundy entered Paris in triumph after the slaughter of their enemies, the Dauphin was proclaimed at Poitiers as the real regent. King Henry had not been idle since his victory of Agincourt, but had repulsed a brave attempt of the French to recover Harfleur, had gradually conquered a great part of Normandy, and at this crisis of affairs took the important town of Rouen, after a siege of half a year. This great loss so alarmed the French, that the Duke of Burgundy proposed that a meeting to treat of peace should be held between the French and the English kings in a plain by the river Seine. On the appointed day, King Henry appeared there, with his two brothers, Clarence and Gloucester, and a thousand men. The unfortunate French king, being more mad than usual that day, could not come. But the queen came, and with her the Princess Catherine, who was a very lovely creature, and who made a real impression on King Henry, now that he saw her for the first time. This was the most important circumstance that arose out of the meeting. As if it were impossible for a French nobleman of that time to be true to his word of honour in anything, Henry discovered that the Duke of Burgundy was, at that very moment, in secret treaty with the Dauphin, and he therefore abandoned the negotiation. The Duke of Burgundy and the Dauphin, each of whom with the best reason distrusted the other as a noble ruffian surrounded by a party of noble ruffians, were rather at a loss how to proceed after this. But at length they agreed to meet, on a bridge over the river Yon, where it was arranged that there should be two strong gates put up, with an empty space between them, and that the Duke of Burgundy should come into that space by one gate, with ten men only, and that the Dauphin should come into that space by the other gate, also with ten men, and no more. So far the Dauphin kept his word, but no farther. When the Duke of Burgundy was on his knee before him in the act of speaking, one of the Dauphin's noble ruffians cut the said Duke down with a small axe, and the others speedily finished him. It was in vain for the Dauphin to pretend that this base murder was not done with his consent. It was too bad, even for France, and caused a general horror. The Duke's heir hastened to make a treaty with King Henry, and the French Queen engaged that her husband should consent to it whatever it was. Henry made peace, on condition of receiving the Princess Catherine in marriage, and being made Regent of France during the rest of the King's lifetime, and succeeding to the French crown at his death. He was soon married to the beautiful princess, and took her proudly home to England, where she was crowned with great honour and glory. This peace was called the Perpetual Peace. We shall soon see how long it lasted. It gave great satisfaction to the French people, although they were so poor and miserable that, at the time of the celebration of the royal marriage, numbers of them were dying with starvation on the dunghills in the streets of Paris. There was some resistance on the part of the Dauphin in some parts of France, but King Henry beat it all down. And now, with his great possessions in France secured, and his beautiful wife to cheer him, and a son born to give him greater happiness, all appeared bright before him. But, in the fullness of his triumph and the height of his power, death came upon him, and his day was done. When he fell ill at Vincennes, and found that he could not recover, he was very calm and quiet, and spoke serenely to those who wept around his bed. His wife and child, he said, he left to the loving care of his brother the Duke of Bedford, and his other faithful nobles. He gave them his advice that England should establish a friendship with the new Duke of Burgundy, and offer him the regency of France, that it should not set free the royal princes who had been taken at Agincourt, and that, whatever quarrel might arise with France, England should never make peace without holding Normandy. Then he laid down his head, and asked the attendant priest to chant the penitential psalms. Amid with solemn sounds, on the 31st of August, 1422, in only the thirty-fourth year of his age and the tenth of his reign, King Henry V passed away. Slowly and mournfully they carried his embalmed body in a procession of great state to Paris, and thence to Rouen, where his queen was, from whom the sad intelligence of his death was concealed until he had been dead some days. 
thence lying on a bed of crimson and gold with a golden crown upon the head and a golden ball and sceptre lying in the nerveless hands they carried it to calais with such a great retinue as seemed to dye the road black the king of scotland acted as chief mourner all the royal household followed the knights wore black armour and black plumes of feathers crowds of men bore torches making the night as light as day and the widowed princess followed last of all at calais there was a fleet of ships to bring the funeral host to dover and so by way of london bridge where the service for the dead was chanted as it passed along they brought the body to westminster abbey and there buried it with great respect End of chapter 21. Recording by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois. Chapter 22 of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Leader. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter 22. England under Henry the Sixth. Part the First. It had been the wish of the late king that while his infant son, King Henry the Sixth, at this time only nine months old, was under age, the Duke of Gloucester should be appointed regent. The English Parliament, however, preferred to appoint a council of regency, with the Duke of Bedford at its head, to be represented, in his absence only, by the Duke of Gloucester. The Parliament would seem to have been wise in this, for Gloucester soon showed himself to be ambitious and troublesome, and, in the gratification of his own personal schemes, gave dangerous offence to the Duke of Burgundy, which was with difficulty adjusted. As that duke declined the regency of France, it was bestowed by the poor French king upon the Duke of Bedford. But the French king, dying within two months, the Dauphin instantly asserted his claim to the French throne, and was actually crowned under the title of Charles the Seventh. The Duke of Bedford, to be a match for him, entered into a friendly league with the Dukes of Burgundy and Brittany, and gave them his two sisters in marriage. War with France was immediately renewed, and the perpetual peace came to an untimely end. In the first campaign, the English, aided by this alliance, were speedily successful. As Scotland, however, had sent the French five thousand men, and might send more, or attack the north of England while England was busy with France, it was considered that it would be a good thing to offer the Scottish king, James, who had been so long imprisoned, his liberty, on his paying forty thousand pounds for his board and lodging during nineteen years, and engaging to forbid his subjects from serving under the flag of France. It is pleasant to know, not only that the amiable captive at last regained his freedom upon these terms, but that he married a noble English lady, with whom he had been long in love, and became an excellent king. I am afraid we have met with some kings in this history, and shall meet with some more, who would have been very much the better, and would have left the world much happier, if they had been imprisoned nineteen years too. In the second campaign, the English gained a considerable victory at Vanoui, in a battle which was chiefly remarkable otherwise, for the resorting to the odd expedient of tying their baggage-horses together by the heads and tails, and jumbling them up with the baggage, so as to convert them into a sort of live fortification, which was found useful to the troops, but which I should think was not agreeable to the horses. For three years afterwards very little was done, owing to both sides being too poor for war, which is a very expensive entertainment. But a council was then held in Paris, in which it was decided to lay siege to the town of Orléans, which was a place of great importance to the Dauphin's cause. An English army of ten thousand men was dispatched on this service, under the command of the Earl of Salisbury, a general of fame. He, being unfortunately killed early in the siege, the Earl of Suffolk took his place, under whom, 
reinforced by Sir John Falstaff, who brought up four hundred wagons laden with salt herrings and other provisions for the troops, and beating off the French, who tried to intercept him, came victorious out of a hot skirmish, which was afterwards called, in jest, the Battle of the Herrings. The town of Orleans was so completely hemmed in, that the besieged proposed to yield it up to their countryman, the Duke of Burgundy. The English general, however, replied that his Englishmen had won it, so far, by their blood and valour, and that his Englishmen must have it. There seemed to be no hope for the town, or for the Dauphin, who was so dismayed that he even thought of flying to Scotland or to Spain, when a peasant girl rose up, and changed the whole state of affairs. The story of this peasant girl I have now to tell. Part the Second, The Story of Joan of Arc In a remote village among some wild hills in the province of Lorraine, there lived a countryman whose name was Jacques de Arc. He had a daughter, Joan of Arc, who was at this time in her twentieth year. She had been a solitary girl from her childhood. She had often tended sheep and cattle for whole days where no human figure was seen or human voice heard, and she had often knelt for hours together in the gloomy, empty little village chapel, looking up at the altar and at the dim lamp burning before it, until she fancied that she saw shadowy figures standing there, and even that she heard them speak to her. The people in that part of France were very ignorant and superstitious, and they had many ghostly tales to tell about what they had dreamed, and what they saw among the lonely hills when the clouds and the mists were resting on them. So they easily believed that Joan saw strange sights, and they whispered among themselves that angels and spirits talked to her. At last Joan told her father that she had one day been surprised by a great unearthly light, and had afterwards heard a solemn voice, which said it was St. Michael's voice, telling her that she was to go and help the Dauphin. Soon after this, she said, St. Catherine and St. Margaret had appeared to her with sparkling crowns upon their heads, and had encouraged her to be virtuous and resolute. These visions had returned sometimes, but the voices very often, and the voices always said, "'Joan, thou art appointed by heaven to go and help the Dauphin.' She almost always heard them while the chapel bells were ringing. Now there is no doubt now that Joan believed she saw and heard these things. It is very well known that such delusions are a disease which is not by any means uncommon. It is probable enough that there were figures of St. Michael and St. Catherine and St. Margaret in the little chapel, where they would be very likely to have shining crowns upon their heads, and that they first gave Joan the idea of these three personages. She had long been a moping, fanciful girl, and though she was a very good girl, I dare say she was a little vain and wishful for notoriety. Her father, something wiser than his neighbour, said, "'I tell thee, Joan, it is thy fancy, and thou hadst better have a kind husband to take care of thee, girl, and work to employ thy mind.' But Joan told him, in reply, that she had taken a vow never to have a husband, and that she must go, as heaven directed her, to help the Dauphin. It happened, unfortunately for her father's persuasions, and most unfortunately for the poor girl, too, that a party of the Dauphin's enemies found their way into the village while Joan's disorder was at this point, and burnt the chapel, and drove out the inhabitants. The cruelties she saw committed touched Joan's heart and made her worse. She said that the voices and the figures were now continually with her, that they told her she was the girl who, according to an old prophecy, was to deliver France, and she must go and help the Dauphin, and must remain with him until he should be crowned at Reims, and that she must travel a long way to a certain lord named Baudricourt, who could and would bring her into the Dauphin's presence. As her father still said, I tell thee, Joan, it is thy fancy, she set off to find out this lord, accompanied by an uncle, a poor village wheelwright and cart-maker, who believed in the reality of her visions. 
they travelled a long way and went on and on over a rough country full of the duke of burgundy's men and of all kinds of robbers and marauders until they came to where this lord was when his servants told him that there was a poor peasant girl named Joan of Arc, accompanied by nobody but an old village wheelwright and cart-maker, who wished to see him because she was commanded to help the Dauphin and save France, Baudricourt burst out a-laughing, and bade them send the girl away. But he soon heard so much about her lingering in the town, and praying in the churches, and seeing visions, and doing harm to no one, that he sent for her and questioned her as she said the same things after she had been well sprinkled with holy water as she had said before the sprinkling baudricourt began to think there might be something in it at all events he thought it worth while to send her on to the town of chinon where the dauphin was so he bought her a horse and a sword and gave her two squires to conduct her as the voices had told Joan that she was to wear a man's dress, now she put one on, and girded her sword to her side, and bound spurs to her heels, and mounted her horse, and rode away with her two squires. As to her uncle the wheelwright, he stood staring at his niece in wonder until she was out of sight, as well he might, and then went home again. The best place, too." Joan and her two squires rode on and on, until they came to Chinon, where she was, after some doubt, admitted into the Dauphin's presence. Picking him out immediately from all his court, she told him that she came commanded by heaven to subdue his enemies and conduct him to his coronation at Reims. She also told him, or he pretended so afterwards, to make the greater impression upon his soldiers, a number of his secrets known only to himself— and furthermore she said there was an old old sword in the cathedral of st catherine at fierbois marked with five old crosses on the blade which st catherine had ordered her to wear now nobody knew anything about this old old sword but when the cathedral came to be examined which was immediately done there sure enough the sword was found the dauphin then required a number of grave priests and bishops to give him their opinion whether the girl derived her power from good spirits or from evil spirits which they held prodigiously long debates about in the course of which several learned men fell fast asleep and snored loudly at last when one gruff old gentleman had said to joan what language do your voices speak and when joan had replied to the gruff old gentleman a pleasanter language than yours they agreed that it was all correct and that joan of arc was inspired from heaven this wonderful circumstance put new heart into the dauphin's soldiers when they heard of it and dispirited the english army who took joan for a witch so joan mounted horse again and again rode on and on until she came to orleans but she rode now as never peasant girl had ridden yet she rode upon a white war-horse, in a suit of glittering armour, with the old, old sword from the cathedral, newly burnished, in her belt, with a white flag carried before her, upon which were a picture of God, and the words, Jesus Maria. In this splendid state, at the head of a great body of troops, escorting provisions of all kinds for the starving inhabitants of Orléans, she appeared before that beleaguered city." When the people on the walls beheld her, they cried out, The maid is come! The maid of the prophecy is come to deliver us! And this, and the sight of the maid fighting at the head of their men, made the French so bold, and made the English so fearful, that the English line of forts was soon broken, the troops and provisions were got into the town, and Orléans was saved. Joan, henceforth called the maid of orleans remained within the walls for a few days and caused letters to be thrown over ordering lord suffolk and his englishmen to depart from before the town according to the will of heaven as the english general very positively declined to believe that joan knew anything about the will of heaven which did not mend the matter with his soldiers for they stupidly said if she were not inspired she was a witch and it was of no use to fight against a witch she mounted her white war-horse again, and ordered her white banner to advance. The besiegers held the bridge, and some strong towers upon the bridge, 
and here the Maid of Orléans attacked them. The fight was fourteen hours long. She planted a scaling ladder with her own hands, and mounted a tower wall, but was struck by an English arrow in the neck, and fell into the trench. She was carried away, and the arrow was taken out, during which operation she screamed and cried with the pain, as any other girl might have done, but presently she said that the voices were speaking to her and soothing her to rest. After a while she got up and was again foremost in the fight. When the English, who had seen her fall and supposed her dead, saw this, they were troubled with the strangest fears, and some of them cried out that they beheld St. Michael on a white horse, probably Joan herself, fighting for the French. They lost the bridge, and lost the towers, and next day set their chain of forts on fire, and left the place. But as Lord Suffolk himself retired no farther than the town of Jargot, which was only a few miles off, the Maid of Orléans besieged him there, and he was taken prisoner. As the white banner scaled the wall, she was struck upon the head with a stone, and was again tumbled down into the ditch. But she only cried all the more as she lay there, "'On, on, my countrymen, and fear nothing, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hands!' After this new success of the maids, several other fortresses and places, which had previously held out against the Dauphin, were delivered up without a battle, and at Patay she defeated the remainder of the English army, and set up her victorious white banner on a field where twelve hundred Englishmen lay dead. She now urged the Dauphin, who always kept out of the way when there was any fighting, to proceed to Reims, as the first part of her mission was accomplished, and to complete the whole by being crowned there. The Dauphin was in no particular hurry to do this, as Reims was a long way off, and the English and the Duke of Burgundy were still strong in the country through which the road lay. However, they set forth with ten thousand men, and again the Maid of Orléans rode on and on, upon her white war-horse and in her shining armour. Whenever they came to a town which yielded readily, the soldiers believed in her, but whenever they came to a town which gave them any trouble, they began to murmur that she was an impostor. The latter was particularly the case at Troy, which finally yielded, however, through the persuasion of one Richard, a friar of the place. Friar Richard was in the old doubt about the Maid of Orléans, until he had sprinkled her well with holy water, and had also well sprinkled the threshold of the gate by which she came into the city. Finding that it made no change in her or the gate, he said, as the other grave old gentleman had said, that it was all right, and became her great ally. So, at last, by dint of riding on and on, the Maid of Orléans, and the Dauphin, and the ten thousand sometimes believing and sometimes unbelieving men, came to Reims, and in the great cathedral of Reims the Dauphin actually was crowned Charles the Seventh in a great assembly of the people. Then the Maid, who with her white banner stood beside the King in that hour of his triumph, kneeled down upon the pavement at his feet, and said, with tears, that what she had been inspired to do was done, and that the only recompense she asked for was, that she should now have leave to go back to her distant home, and her sturdily incredulous father, and her first simple escort, the village wheelwright and cart-maker. But the king said, No, and made her and her family as noble as a king could, and settled upon her the income of a count. Ah! Happy had it been for the Maid of Orléans if she had resumed her rustic dress that day, and had gone home to the little chapel and the wild hills, and had forgotten all these things, and had been a good man's wife, and had heard no stranger voices than the voices of little children. It was not to be, and she continued helping the king—she did a world for him in alliance with Friar Richard—and trying to improve the lives of the coarse soldiers and leading a religious, unselfish, and a modest life her, herself beyond any doubt. Still, many times she prayed the king to let her go home, and once she even took off her bright armour and hung it up in a church, meaning never to wear it more. But the king always won her back again, while she was of any use to him, and so she went on and on and on to her doom. 
when the Duke of Bedford, who was a very able man, began to be active for England, and, by bringing the war back into France, and by holding the Duke of Burgundy to his faith, to distress and disturb Charles very much, Charles sometimes asked the Maid of Orleans what the voices said about it. But the voices had become, very like ordinary voices in perplexed times, contradictory and confused so that now they said one thing, and now said another, and the maid lost credit every day. Charles marched on Paris, which was opposed to him, and attacked the suburb of St. Honoré. In this fight, being again struck down into the ditch, she was abandoned by the whole army. She lay unaided among a heap of dead, and crawled out how she could. Then some of her believers went over to an opposition maid, Catherine of La Rochelle, who said she was inspired to tell where there were treasures of buried money, though she never did, and then Joan accidentally broke the old, old sword, and others said that her power was broken with it. Finally, at the siege of Compiègne, held by the Duke of Burgundy, where she did valiant service, Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.